when you see a block of foam become Cookie Monster over the course of a day or two. It's just a very, very cool thing to watch. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to episode 90. Today, we're discussing the indirect ROI of an amazing customer experience. Our guest this week is Mark Rosenzweig, who's been in the attractions industry for over 20 years, and he's currently at 3DX, a custom scenic design and fabrication company. They're based in Cincinnati, and they do a lot of, let's say, the peripheral aspects that contribute to the guest experience at an amusement park. They make stages, they make caricatures, all the things that add to that experience. But I know I'm not doing it justice. Mark is going to share exactly what they do here in a moment. But with that, here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we're going to talk about what 3DX does, how Mark got into the attractions industry, and how he ended up at 3DX. Second, we'll discuss challenges Mark's come across as a fabricator, as well as discussing workforce, logistics, and parts. This is where we get into a lot of the parallels with traditional manufacturing. Finally, we talk about attracting talent to places like Cincinnati and Baltimore. Again, another very typical manufacturing topic. So we always enjoy drawing parallels in related industries on this show. And this is certainly one where manufacturers can draw a lot of insights in terms of customer experience from this episode. As always, you can find more at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 90. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review over at iTunes or let's say Spotify this time. Spotify for those Spotify listeners out there. Just hit that five-star button while you're listening to the app, or if you want to go there for the first time, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify will take you right there. And now, it's time to crack a beer with Mark Rosenzweig. All right, Mark, it's always good to do a proper manufacturing happy hour on like a Friday afternoon where we can actually have a beverage. So you've got a beer in front of you. Where Where is that beer from? Well, I happen to have, uh, it's a seasonal IPA from Rheingeist here in Cincinnati. It is uh, the Hustle, named after Charlie Hustle or Pete Rose. I'm not, uh, I haven't lived in Cincinnati long enough to say the Reds are my team 100%, but um, I've never had a National League team. So I guess uh, adopting them work. So cheers, Chris. Cheers, Mark. Great to have you here. Happy Friday. Mm-hmm. And happy opening day for many on the day that we're recording this. That's a, it's a baseball themed beer, obviously. Oh, yeah. So good to get back into the swing of it. Um, no pun intended, but as I say it, I'm, I'm totally okay with having gone that direction. So, you know, your beer is from Rheingeist and I've been to Rheingeist once before, but you're the local. It's an awesome Cincinnati craft brewery. Paint the picture of what it would be like if we were having that beer there today. Well, it, it's in the heart of the um, OTR or over the Rhine neighborhood, which is uh, a heavily gentrified neighborhood in the heart of downtown Cincinnati. It's it's a really quirky, funky, awesome place where there's just a lot of repurposed old buildings. And, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. So we, we'd probably be right at the main bar in Rheingeist having a beer, uh, celebrating the weekend and uh, seeing seeing what happens. It's uh, 
It's a great place, though. I mean, Cincinnati really is a city of neighborhoods. And coming here from Baltimore, Maryland, uh, there are a lot of similarities in that regard. Yeah, I remember when I was visiting, it's like on the fourth floor of an old warehouse. You got to walk up the stairs to get there. Cool vibe in the spirit of getting to know you over a beer. My first question has to be, what does 3DX do? Describe that as if we're having beverages uh, at Rheingeist. Yeah, so at, at its heart and soul, 3DX is a custom scenic fabrication company. And uh, we're one of the very few scene shops that really uh, does, has everything under our under the roofs of our facilities. We have uh, three separate buildings here at our Blue Ash campus. We have our main fabrication shop, which is where we have our paint shop, our wood shop, our steel shop, uh, metal shop, uh, CNC Village, we call it, which is where our KUKA robot is. And we've got two flatbed routers as well. Um, and then across the parking lot, we have our print shop where we do all large format printing, direct to substrate, all kinds of cool things, Re corporate rebrands, um, local retail outlets, you name it. Um, and of course, some theme park uh, signs as well. And then just down the road, uh, we have our composite shop, and that's where we uh, we shoot polyurea, which is a hard coat, and uh, we also have fiberglass. So um, it's kind of like a big ballet here, where we have all different departments working together on different projects, and uh, um, that that's part of the fun here. Every every project's a challenge, but it's really it's it's the team working together that really does it for me. That's the really the really cool thing. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, right? That you're, I'd say, manufacturing adjacent, right? fabricating you know one one question i have since you know you ultimately got into the fabrication space after you got into the entertainment space so i'm curious how did you get into the ride entertainment world to begin with um i followed a passion which i think is an, an important thing that everyone should do and not not be afraid but it it really helps uh i think it helps waking up every morning with a sense of purpose and knowing that you're in the industry that your passion can serve because you can't fake passion. Um, passion leads to knowledge, which leads to high morale, which leads to um, just strong work ethic, really. If you love what you do, you never really work a day. I've heard that cliche many times, but it is true. So back right out of college in 1998, I, uh, um, I decided I wanted to try to work in the theme park industry. So I got an operations job, a seasonal job, which is the equivalent of really getting your hands dirty. And, and I always suggest to anyone that comes to me that wants a job, um, even as a roller coaster designer, engineer, or working in manufacturing or fabrication, always start getting your hands dirty. You can't learn, you can't do the design piece until you're out on a floor somewhere, actually putting something together or um, on the front lines, actually operating a facility. So from there, that led to moving back to my uh, home base in New York City at the time. And um, I got my first uh, full-time job in the industry, which was with Sam Perla, a large Italian ride manufacturer. And I did sales and marketing for them for about seven years, which then led to the next opportunity with the ride entertainment uh, group in uh, the Baltimore, Maryland area. And I, I was there from uh, 2007 through 2020. Um, and there I wore many, many hats um, with ride sales, operations, finance. Uh, we did a little bit of everything in project management, which, um, you know, project management is a skill set that is invaluable in any industry. So um, that, that was another thing that greatly helped my, the evolution of myself and my career. And then um, kind of in the midst of the COVID pandemic, right in 2020, I had kind of a career shift where my position was eliminated at Ride Entertainment. And um, I found 3DX Scenic um, 
just by coincidence on the IAPA job board and um, and sent my resume over and came out to meet the team and was hired. And now I am, <clears throat> excuse me, the senior account executive here. So I basically run all of the sales and I have a hand in marketing as well for all of our efforts, uh, which is generally in North America, but we do some stuff overseas as well when it's incorporated into larger projects. It's funny that you bring up IAPA because that's the conference where you and I met and it was unique that you had, I believe, a seven axis robot out on the floor, which uh, at that type of conference, which is more amusement parks and attractions focused, that's pretty unique. Can can you tell us what that does in your fabrication business? Just, you know, because I'm sure the audience, when we're dealing with large KUKA robots, it's probably not for the same thing that you're using it for. Sure, sure. And, and um, in full transparency, so what we did at, at IAPA, which is the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions for uh, viewers that aren't familiar, we um, backed up to our uh, the company that we purchased our robot from. So that robot you saw there was actually from Robotic Solutions. They're based in Wisconsin, and we actually bought our uh, 7-Access KUKA from them. So we, we found it to be very efficient for us to be next to them because they have people coming to them asking, where is a scene shop that has this that we can engage with? And then people would come to us and ask, oh, wow, you guys do all this work. Where could we possibly talk to someone about procuring one of these. So it worked out really well. But long story short is we use the robot for everything, generally um, for cutting foam. And uh, that's for our projects where we're using polyurea or fiberglass. So if we're doing sculptures, signage, anything with dimension, uh, it's an invaluable tool. A, it works through the night, uh, never calls in sick. It's just one of those like employee of the year award type thing. But it, it really does. Uh, it, it's such an invaluable tool, uh, tool for us. We also have, you know, we can cut uh, wood, we can cut sign foam. And when we do certain dimensional signs with sign foam, they don't even require polyurea or fiberglass. We could just paint and seal those. And um, one example of that is the sign we did for Lake Compounds in Bristol, Connecticut for Boulder Dash, which is the marquee that guests walk under as they're entering the attraction. So it, it's really an invaluable tool for us. It, it, it works um, on so many projects. Yeah, I have a couple questions around that. So you've described it well. You know, I'm, I'm curious, you, you mentioned this Lake Compounds project. Is there another project that you can share? I know you might need to speak in generalities because of IP and things along those lines, but uh, one of the cooler projects that you fabricated, whether it was that robot or just a, another general project that you were working on. Sure. I, I mean, the, the very large project we just completed was um, the transformation of Aquatica to Sesame Place San Diego. Um, that was a large project that got paused during the COVID pandemic and then restarted in October of 21. I'm sorry, October of 20. And our team just returned from the site about two weeks ago from completing the last phase of install. So our our robot um, aided in the in the creation of all of the character sculpts. So um, we, we get a three-dimensional model from the IP owner, in this case, it's Sesame Workshop. And then um, we, our team will program the robot and then it cuts the various pieces of the sculpts. And then those pieces go to our composite shop for fiberglassing. And it's, it, it's really one of those, um, when, you, when you see a block of foam become Cookie Monster over the course of a day or two, it's just a very, very cool thing to watch. Um, and, and it allows us also, because we can create molds 
So we can create a mold for uh, if, if a client has a piece, in this case for Sesame, uh, Sesame Place, we created molds with the idea that down the road, if they wanted to do repeats, the uh, per unit cost on those sculpts would drop dramatically versus doing a one-off every time they wanted one. Awesome story. You know, the other thing I'm thinking about with, you're talking about Sesame Place and foam sculptures, what you did at Lake Compounds as well. A lot of the things you work on aren't necessarily the core piece of the attraction at an amusement park, right? It's not the roller coaster. It's not the ride. Tell me how what you do relates to a term I've heard you talk about called indirect ROI. Sure. It, it's um, <laughs> it, it's usually the hardest thing to sell to a finance um, person like a CFO because everything has to have a return on investment. When you, when you purchase an asset, what is that going to do? In the theme park world, it's generally looked at how is it going to drive the gate? How is it going to drive ticket sales, season pass sales? Um, per capita spending, whatever that that metric is that they're looking to grow. Um, in the case of theming, which is really our specialty, whether it's signage or character sculpts um, or, you know, anything really. I mean, we do scenic flats. We scenically treat buildings as a parent. You know, I'm not I'm not the 22 year old that used to line up at Rope Drop at Cedar Point and elbow their way to Raptor, let's say the namesake of your shirt today. Um, I now take it much slower and I let my kids, I have a 12 and eight year old, um, guide me through the park essentially. So I am noticing things I didn't used to notice. And it's more important that I notice them because I'm the parent along with my wife, we're the two parents with the wallets and we're spending the money. So if there's an engaging, um, thematic, immersive area, I have found that I am way more likely to enjoy my time in that area of the park and open my wallet and buy another beer, buy another hot dog or ice cream. So that is really the basis for the indirect ROI, where it's hard to put uh, metrics or data on paper to prove that. But um, but it's certainly a thing. I know on a personal level it is. Yeah, I think about it in terms of the manufacturing space. Like, you know, when when you get a product, what's the purchasing experience like? What's the packaging look like, for example? I think of Apple as a primary example on that. And what's just the overall experience, the unique things you can do, whether that's something as a manufacturer you do on social media or running a community for your group. I thought that was really interesting when you were bringing up indirect ROI. And it's something that, you know, personally, I feel like a lot of traditional manufacturers need to be thinking about more. And, and one other thing, Chris, I, I forgot to mention one big component of our of our business model right now are photo opportunities. And that could be the giant carousel horse horses that we've done for Palace, because those do have more of, of a calculated ROI because of the social media shares, the Instagram shares, the Facebook shares, they're tagging your park there. Um, so there, there is direct value there. It's just hard to, to gauge it sometimes. That's a great point right there. Cause I also think about, Hey, what can manufacturers do to get more of that social proof? Right. I mean, trade shows are coming back right now. If you're a manufacturer and you have a cool, a, like demo of an assembly line or a cool robot in your trade show booth, you're getting a lot more social engagement as well. So that's a great point about how the business of selfies, I think, is the way I've heard it described before. 
My next question, we've talked about some of the, let's say the, the fun aspects of what we do, but you know, you're fabricating some pretty custom things. You've described yourself as a boutique MacGyver before. I'm curious if you have a story around, you know, one of the challenges you've come across and how you've overcome it. Yeah. You, you know, it, it's because no two projects of ours are ever the same. I, I think right then and there, you cannot survive in this type of environment unless you are able to roll with pressure and take a step back and observe and calculate and then and put a plan in place. So really from our when, when I when I say more the, the boutique MacGyver, that's kind of a cute way of just saying we we are really the masters of methodology. So in the realm of selling, say, roller coasters or an item that is very black or white, um, when an RFP goes out, it's generally for they they provide to the client will provide to you. This is what we're looking for. And that's really it. You're not going to get guidance on budget. You're not going to get guidance typically on, on where you need to come in with our end of things. It's actually beneficial um, to have a very tra- and we're very transparent with how we approach our business. But to have that open, transparent conversation so that we understand where something should fall. Um, at 3DX, we pride ourselves on very quality build, high-end build, and we tend to come in on the middle to upper end of the pricing spectrum. If you look at if, if we got a drawing, an inspiration drawing, and we're going to bid that, we're typically going to come in on the higher end, but we're going to deliver a higher end product, we believe. So having some kind of a budget guideline allows our boutique MacGyvers to then kind of back into that number. And whether that's methodology or materials or a combination of the both, um, then we can come to the client with exactly what we can deliver in that in that range. And um, as a sales guy, I'm 150% confident that what we deliver is always going to be approved and, and appreciated by our clients because we only deliver high quality product. You know, another thing on on this front that I have a question around is, um, you know, you mentioned that when there when you have creative liberty in a project, that you can come up ways to, uh, with ways to save time and money. I'm curious of another example of, of where you've done this before, right? Because in the manufacturing world, that's something everyone's looking for as well, whether it's a process, whether it's a specific project. I'd love to hear a little bit of that. Certainly, I, I would say we do a lot of trade show um, design and fabrication as well through our through our various, you know, because we have an in-house creative department, so we can actually do a turnkey design and build for a trade show booth. And given that trade show booths are typically very modular, those are the type of things that we could look at something and I, I hate to use the term dumb it down, but look at different attributes of the booth and just say, OK, how important, like prioritize what is the most important thing here. And also so we understand what the what the goal is. What is this booth trying to what's the story it's trying to tell? And then we can go back and whether it's um, thickness of shelves or um, very the selection of light fixtures or what have you, we can then come back and value engineer that type of product because of the modular sense of that. that that's really, I, I think, the clearest example. Um, other examples are more just um, kind of using the same mentality of, OK, what what is the priority list here? You know, if it's a parade float, what are what is what is the story this parade float is trying to tell? How many performers need to be on it or in, in, engaged with it? Um, there, there's, there are always ways that, that you could do it with regard to signage. That's another great example. The sky is the limit. The budget is the limit when I say the sky is the limit, but I mean, with thickness and dimension and, 
um, or if we go two-dimensional uh, print sign, then we can go through the different substrates we have. Is this indoors? Is it outdoors? So really from that regard, I mean, we're very uh, cognizant that budgets drive jobs. And um, as long as we have a client, a partner that we're working with that is as transparent as ours, we're normally going to work with them, not only for this job, but long-term, because that's really how we work. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for the biggest events in the automation industry? If you are, you're going to want to hear about today's sponsor, A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. A3 is the leading global automation trade association of the robotics, machine vision, motion control, and AI industries. They also throw some of the best events in the automation and manufacturing space. And for me, they're the source of some of the best connections I've made in the manufacturing industry. You might not realize this, but throughout the years, we've featured over 10 different A3 partners on this podcast. Now, whether we're talking about their annual business form or their marquee event, the Automate Show, A3's events are the spot for building partnerships, exploring new technologies, and getting a pulse on the industry. If you're listening to this episode before June 2022, make sure to check out Automate 2022 taking place in Detroit, Michigan, June 6th through 9th. I, for one, will definitely be there. Head to automateshow.com for more information and to register for free today. And you can always learn what A3 has going on by visiting automate.org. And now, back to today's episode. I'm going to switch gears here to, it's not really switching gears, actually. This continues on our path, right? We're talking about ways to drive a project and, and do well within the time and budget. You know, a thing we see in the manufacturing space all the time is workforce challenges, right? When you're doing projects, you're looking at cost and availability of logistics, parts, as well as workforces. So what are the the workforce challenges you've come across in your space? Because when I think about your area in the entertainment industry, you'd think people would be like banging down the door to get into it. Yeah, um, we're not alone. It's every industry. It's every company um, that, that is going through the same thing. And um, like how many of our projects were paused and then restarted during the pandemic, um, so went the employment cycle. So, you know, m- many companies, including ours, had to make some very difficult decisions with regard to human resources during that period. Um, we we kept on as many people as we could. But, you know, when, when that happens and then you have all the projects restart first and then you're trying to repopulate your shop. So we're, we're in a position at 3DX, you know, we have a tech office where we have people doing the AutoCADing, um, you know, using Rhino and do, doing all of the, the tech build and then the fab shop. So it's a two teams that kind of, you know, work hand in hand. The challenge has really been getting, getting populated back to where we were, say in 2019. I wasn't here at that time, but, but I, I know just of the numbers. We've taken a lot of initiative to get people here. Cincinnati is not exactly, um, I would say it, it, it's an amazing place to live. Uh, it's a great city. It's sort of, I, I call it, it's a wagon wheel city in that there's so much within two hours of it, where a lot of Midwestern cities truly are islands where you have to drive four hours to get anywhere else. Here you have Columbus, Lexington, Louisville, uh, Colum- um, Indianapolis, all within two hours. And 
every single interest or box you could check is here in Cincinnati, whether it's the zoo, whether it's urban living, suburban living, um, beer, we have it all here, really. It's just not on the radar nationally for where people are thinking to move. So we're not quite in Orlando or Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco, for example. Um, we do have very good cost of living here, though. One of the best uh, pound for pound cost of living uh, versus quality of life that, that I, I could think of in America. But really, it, it, the challenge is that. And, and I, I, do, I do start we're starting to see the trend of people finally coming back. We've had several new hires over the last few weeks and, and several more candidates coming in. I'm confident that this time next year will be closer to a normal business cycle, both with regard to what we can sell slash build and how many people we have in our various facilities. I want to talk about Cincinnati and some of these mid-sized cities a little bit more and how we're attracting talent to those spots. Because remind me, you've spent time in Baltimore as well, right? Yeah, I, I lived in Baltimore for 13 years from 2007 to 2020. So maybe let's look at both of these experiences, you know, you know, cost of living aside, what are the things that you you did to attract people to both of those spots, right? Baltimore as well as Cincinnati, I'd say under the radar cities with a lot of cool things, but uh, not necessarily, like you said, a coastal city that jumps out at someone like in L.A. or in New York. Yeah, I, I think the big difference is Baltimore is far and away more transient than Cincinnati in that you've got government workers You've got all the uh, universities like Hopkins. You've got the medical industry. You've got a lot of people not from Baltimore living there and moving there. So it's a magnet for talent. Um, Cincinnati has some of that. We have Procter & Gamble. We've got Cintas. We've got several large companies based here, but it is not as transient as Baltimore. Also, I think Baltimore has that advantage of being on the I-95 Amtrak corridor where it's just super convenient. You can hop from Boston to D.C. on the train. It's the only place in America that feels like you might be living in Europe where you can travel by train regularly. Um, in Cincinnati, we have one train that comes through, I think, twice a week, and it's at two in the morning or something. So it's not really um, a thing. But um, it's one of these things where I, I knew Cincinnati personally through my former work travel. I would visit Kings Island and, um, you know, the parks around this area quite frequently. So I knew it was a really cool place to live. I don't think it's on the radar for many people. They just hear Cincinnati and it gets lumped in with a lot of the other mid-sized Midwest cities um, like Cleveland and Pittsburgh. But all these cities really have a lot of soul, a lot of character and a lot of smart people. Um, uh, so it's it just I, I, again, I think this time next year we'll be having a different, a better and different conversation regarding um, our labor situation here. But for now. You know, we're, we're making do with what we have. Um, we're a very transparent company. We're not taking on work that we cannot hit a date, a due date on. That's not something we do because we, um, and one thing that drew me to 3DX was really how transparent and um, we're, we're big thinkers here. We're not just looking at the thing in front of us. We're thinking about next year, five years, almost that five, 10 year plan. Where do we want to be? What do we want to be doing? Um, and a lot of that, you know, uh, I, me bringing my contacts over here from uh, 22 years of, of working in the attractions industry has really kind of turned pivoted the company in a way because we're, we're getting a lot more theme park work now, whereas in the past it was a lot. Um, we always get live event work through our live event mothership, 
Um, but we would typically get a lot more in the realm of uh, office rebrands and and that kind of thing. But now we're getting more into the, uh, you know, amusement park signage, uh, character scopes, not just at the Sea Worlds and the big parks, but the small parks as well. Yeah. Tell me, you know, you mentioned five to 10 year plan. I'd love to just get the world according to Mark here a little bit on where you think things are going to go in, in the themed entertainment space over the next five to 10 years and the role of, you know, like you said earlier, this indirect ROI work that you're doing, where do you think that's going? I think it's going to continue. Um, the theme parks in America are generally themed amusement parks, I've, I've called them. When, once you leave Orlando and Southern California, and there are a handful of others like Dollywood and Silver Dollar City that are truly theme parks. But with regard to the theming and the signage and the props, I've seen a major step up in the last few years from Cedar Fair and Six Flags and the other park groups um, that are that are going more the way of these events and festivals. A good example is at uh, Carowinds in Charlotte. They're debuting a new event on Saturday called State Line Celebration, which celebrates the heritage of the Carolinas. Food, beverage, music. Um, it's a great way for um, season pass holders and day guests to experience the park in a new light. And I think that that's really been one thing the pandemic has grown because the parks aren't adding the 20, 30 million dollar coasters like they were three, four years ago. But they do have the capital to put on these events that do have a very uh, reliable ROI attached to them. So I, I see that maintaining itself. I think the, the Grand Carnival event at Cedar Fair, um, they're going on year the third year for that this year coming up has been tremendously successful when you attach a parade a theme parade that ties the event together and you have it towards the end of the night, it increases length of stay, which increases your your per capita spending. It's really a win-win because it makes the park experience better. It allows people to see the park in a different light and it increases the bottom line for the park. So that's kind of like a, a, a general answer to your question. If I'm looking at my crystal ball, though, I, I, I see these type of events and also themed environments continuing to grow, whether they're indoor parks like the American Dream uh, Nick Universe, or just um, taking old and tired areas of existing parks and adding new life to them. Cedar Fair has been doing it for many years now, and I see that trend continuing. So a question that just popped into my mind, right? A lot, you know, really, we we talked to Josh Liebman back in episode 17, so a long time ago, like two years ago. And the whole idea around that episode was, hey, what can manufacturers learn about customer experience from the entertainment industry? So a question I have for you is, you know, you're doing all this work that ultimately adds to the experience. It gets you to open up your wallet and buy that extra hot dog, that extra beer because you're having a great time. What's one of the most important guest experience, customer experience lessons you've learned in your career? that might be able to help out our audience of uh, manufacturing leaders that listen to this show? Um, from a guest experience standpoint, as a general statement, simplify things. I'm I'm not a fan of, a, of any kind of business model that requires a ton of planning six months in advance when I don't know what I'm going to want to eat tomorrow. I don't know I'm supposed to book a restaurant six months in advance. Take a deep breath. I, I think rely on technology. Have a solid and workable um, and intuitive app that gives you wait times, that allows you to order food mobily, that um, allows you to book your um, fast lane, fast pass, what, what have you. 
have it at your fingertips. Let the guest control their own experience. When the guest controls their own experience, they're empowered. They're more likely to come back, I believe. And um, ultimately, they're happier because if something doesn't go exactly as planned, they planned it. It's not something that they can, you know, say, oh, this is, you know, I have to wait four hours for this. Well, if you know it's a four hour wait, you check the app, you know, to go somewhere else. So just as a general statement, and this is more with traveling with with kids, it's it's hard enough to travel without kids. When you're with kids in a busy facility, this could be anywhere, putting all that technology and making it intuitive and not overly complicated is really the way to go. And and I, I use Universal Orlando Resort as a great example right now. It's it's as pain free a park experience as I've I've experienced in forever. And maybe it's because I'm so accustomed to all the the planning needed now. But you just you show up there, and if you want to buy their Express Pass, you can. If not, you just go about your day. You don't have to reserve a day. You don't have to. You know they have dynamic pricing as they should, as every park should now. Um, it's important because it spreads the crowds across the calendar. And I think that um, lends itself to a better guest experience. It you know, lessens the crowds, say, during Christmas, and then maybe increases crowds on a Tuesday in May when it wouldn't be as busy. So I, I, I really think put, put the control in the guest's hands and make it intuitive and easy. I think that's great advice, really applicable to the manufacturing world as well, right? You know, talk about simplifying technology, make it easy to buy from a manufacturer, put the power into a manufacturer, like the consumer's hands at the end of the day, right? There's this big trend around mass customization in the manufacturing world now. And I think a lot of that relates back to some of the things you said. I've only got a couple more questions as we get to the end of the interview. But, uh, you know, we were talking about Baltimore and Cincinnati. You taught we talked about Rheingeist earlier. Great spot to get a beer in Cincinnati. Where's a good spot to get a beer in Baltimore? It's a Friday afternoon. You know, it's manufacturing happy hour. I think we could use one more beer recommendation before this wraps up. Yeah. You know, Baltimore as another hot beer town. It's kind of it's gone over the top almost. I actually found like there are several good beer bars that I would go to, not just the breweries um, all around town. Um, The uh, I'm drawing a blank now on the name and I'm going to have to. This is what happens when you're when you're gone for three years. Just by coincidence, one really cool place to go in the Baltimore area and you would never think this is the Guinness Brewery, which is not in the city proper. It's down towards the BWI airport. It's the only brewery owned and operated by Guinness on American soil, and it's where they brew their Blondale. But they've got all kinds of cool um, experimental stouts and different beers. And of course, they have the the traditional um, Irish stout that you can get properly poured with a spoon and, you know, you get that frothy head on it. But um, they also have really good food uh, options there as well, both like a casual snack bar and a more formal sit down restaurant. So that was something that opened towards the end of my uh, residency in Baltimore. But really, really cool. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it, it's a Cincinnati and Baltimore are kind of sister cities in a lot of ways. They're very neighborhood based, um, a lot of friendly people, um, easy to get around. Um, I wish Cincinnati, they, they both lack mass transit. That's the one knock I would say like functional mass transit. They're, they're really limited to, um, to buses. Um, I I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, subways and, and what have you. I just got back from a week in England and, spending four days in London without a car and just using the underground and 
buses and what have you. I mean, it was it was wonderful not to have to even think about driving. Well, you have some New York routes as well, too. Yeah. So, you know, it's very easy to uh, to get around on on their subway system. All right. Well, one one other fun question before we wrap it up. So, you know, you commented on the Raptor shirt earlier, my favorite roller coaster at Cedar Point, or I should say historically one of my favorites there. What park is on your radar for this summer? Where are you hitting up that you're excited about? Well, my tra- my work travels are going to take me quite a few places. We just got back from a trip to the UK over spring break, and it was a hybrid park and London trip. So we did spend a few days in Blackpool. Um, we got to visit Blackpool Pleasure Beach for a few days, which if you've never been, is kind of like if Kennywood, Indiana Beach, and Maury's Piers had a baby. That's basically what it is, crossed with um, the grittiness of Coney Island and I, I absolutely love everything about Pleasure Beach and Blackpool as a city. I, I would recommend it to anyone. It's very, you know, blue collar, lower middle class demographic, I would say. But it truly is the people's playground, which is what Coney Island, New York is called, too. It's everyone. It's inclusive. Everyone comes. It's a great time. The people watching is amazing. We also visited Alton Towers over there, which is a very unique park in that it's built on grounds formerly owned by the uh the Earl of Shrewsbury. So it was owned by Royals and the towers that the house in the center is several hundred years old. It's, it's um, undergoing refurbishment, but it's considered castle rooms, I guess, but you can access several parts of it, um, including the rooftops. And the big thing at this park is that you can't build over the, the tree line. So all of their coasters um, either go down into trenches like oblivion, that it's a vertical drop coaster that you only see 65 feet of, so the remaining 155 feet are below ground. You don't even see it. Um, Nemesis, which I'm sure you're familiar with, it opened the same year as Raptor. Um, just one of the best inverted coasters I've ever been on. Um, it, it's just a really unique park experience. You really you walk miles because the themed areas are very dense for where they are, but they're they're a half mile apart. So to get from Oblivion to Nemesis is a good 20, 30 minute walk at minimum. But for this year. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to California. I think that's probably the big one. I'm going to go visit um, SeaWorld San Diego to see our work out there and then probably hop by Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm and Magic Mountain and then work my way up to the Bay Area for California's Great America, the Beach Boardwalk and uh, Discovery Kingdom. So I, I would say of those, um, yeah, I, I still have a lot of parks in Europe and Asia that are on my bucket list, like Efteling and Tokyo Disney Resort. But those will happen eventually. Well, I won't have all the links to the parks you just rattled off in the show notes because you went through like <laughs> 10 of them. But uh, it's funny for for a podcast that's primarily North American based. Alton Towers has come up multiple times. Josh and I riffed about that back in episode 17. So uh, it is one of my favorites. Nemesis is a great ride. I know I was asking that as like a future looking question, but I had completely forgotten that you had said you were going to be doing spring break over there. And that's why we scheduled our interview a few <laughs> weeks out. So you've already had some good amusement park fun this year. How about you, Chris? Where are you headed? Oh, man. Good question. Um, I might be making my way down to Texas okay. this year, trying uh, Dr. Diabolicals at uh, Six Flags Fiesta, Texas, their new B&M drop coaster, vertical drop coaster. And I think it's due time for me to take a road trip across uh, like the Southeast, like before you get to Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Carowinds, never been there. Six Flags over Georgia, never done that. So that's what my agenda is looking like at some point this summer. 
Well, let's let's have a real beer together at Rheingeist and visit Kings Island and come by and see our shop at some point this summer. Sounds like a plan. As uh, as we wrap up today's conversation, is there anything you wish I would have asked you that I haven't yet? No, I, I think we covered a lot. I, I think it's really um, a lot of what we've talked about are really great conversation points that it's important to none of us are really recovered from the pandemic. I, I think I'm kind of in this space that people tend to um I don't know if they're afraid, but I think it's important to talk about insecurities. I think it's important to talk about challenges. And I think it's important to be very transparent that we're not out of the pandemic. This is not a normal economy yet. This is not a normal manufacturing or fabrication cycle yet, but it is heading that way. And these type of conversations are important for you and I to have, but also for other people to hear and that always network, reach out to people and talk because um, in 10 years, everything's going to be fine. We're going to be looking back on this time and say, wow, what a challenge, but we got through it. Um, so just as a general statement, you know, none of this is normal. We're all dealing with it. We're all going to succeed. We're all going to get through it. Um, I'm really looking forward to the future and what 3DX will be doing. Um, and and I, I think all, all of your contacts uh, through the manufacturing fabrication industries as well I, th- I think there's a lot there's a big bright light and we're almost at the end of this tunnel yeah we're we're excited to see things get back to normal we're uh, we're fighting through the supply chain issues right now so hopefully those are behind us in 10 years as well as we wrap up what's the best way to connect with you and 3dx so um best way to connect with me i'm on instagram at mark scott rose if you want to check out some of my nerdy roller coaster photos um, and then my email is markr at 3dxscenic.com. And our website is www.3dxscenic.com. And 3dx is also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. So you can find us there as well. And our parent company is Live Technologies. So if you follow them, they have their own social media platforms as well. And that's our live production uh, company. That's our, our mothership company. I will have links to all of those in the show notes over at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And with that, one last cheers, and thank you so much for jumping on today's show, Mark. Thanks for having me, Chris. It was a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Mark for jumping on the show today. If you want to access any of the resources we mentioned in this episode, whether that's 3DX or Rheingeist Brewing in Cincinnati, you can do that at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 90. I want to thank our sponsor for this week as well, A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. And gosh, Automate 2022 is sneaking right up. If you're listening to this before June 2022, you're going to want to make sure you attend what is bound to be one of the biggest shows in manufacturing in 2022. It's going to be in Detroit, June 6th through 9th tons of people there. We're going to be broadcasting live from that event, and we hope to see you there too. If you want to register for free, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash automate2022 to register today, and we hope to see you in Detroit this June. Finally, if you liked this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating over at Spotify. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify, or presuming you're someone that's listening there on your phone right now, just hit that five-star button. It's not hard. It really helps us out, and we'd love it if you did. With that, that's it for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. 
powered by the Industrial Network.